Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge. I'm the president of Gateway Seminary. It's my pleasure each week to talk with you about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Uh, on the podcast, we do a wide-ranging uh, number of subjects, uh, talking about things like how to handle mistakes, how to maintain integrity, uh, all kinds of issues. But today, and really for the next few weeks, I, I want to focus in on uh, an issue that's been really important to me over the past few years, and that is leading major change in your ministry. Now, uh, as many of you know, Gateway Seminary was once known as Golden Gate Seminary, once had a primary campus in the San Francisco Bay Area, specifically in uh, Marin County in near Mill Valley, California. But a few years ago, we went through a very significant process of relocating our primary campus to Ontario, California, and changing our name from Golden Gate to Gateway, and really launching, uh, in many ways, what is a new kind of seminary for the 21st century. The change that we've gone through has been profound, and we have learned so much through the process and uh, really have been gratified by how God has led us and how he's helped us and how successful it's been overall. So as a result of all of that, um, I wrote a book entitled Leading Major Change in Your Ministry, and that book is going to be out uh, for sale everywhere on April the 2nd. It's coming out in a print form, also an ebook form, but also it's going to be out as an audio book. So the book is, uh, ho- or we hope the book will make a significant contribution to helping ministry leaders uh, understand uh, what it takes to lead major change, what some of those processes are, what some of the challenges are, um, and how to really do it the most effectively. So today, and really I think for the next two or three weeks on the podcast, I want to talk about different aspects of leading major change. Now, I'm not going to try to go through the whole book. That would be impossible. I'm going to try to highlight some excerpts from it and also talk about some, uh, maybe some of the key principles that come out of the book and hopefully whet your appetite not only for reading it, but uh, giving it to others that are struggling with how to lead major change in their ministry settings. Now, in the past, I've actually taught you a definition of leadership that I borrow from a man named Joseph Rost and his book, Leadership for the 21st Century. Uh, Dr. Rost was a professor of leadership, and he and his research team did a magnificent job of of, uh, really studying the subject of leadership in the 20th century for the purpose of writing a working definition going forward. Now, quite honestly, their book is a is a, uh, an academic masterpiece. It is incredibly difficult to read, tiny print, lots of footnotes, but when you can get through all of that and get right down to the real core of their research and the core of their writing, uh, their definition is very helpful. So I've been using it for the last few years, and it goes like this. Leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real changes according to their mutual purposes. Now, of course, the part of the definition I'm emphasizing today is intent real changes. Leadership is about change. Leadership is about diagnosing where you are, strategizing where you need to go, and then taking the concrete action steps required uh, to move your church or your organization forward into a preferred future. Now the reality is uh, this kind of change can be painful. In fact, this kind of change is often painful. A number of years ago, when I first came to the seminary, one of my friends uh, who worked here uh, was discussing with me the challenge of leading the seminary forward, and he made a statement which I initially reacted to very negatively. He said, you cannot lead if you cannot inflict pain. And I thought, that's not right. 
That's not right. I'm, I'm a pastor, a leader at heart. I, I care about people. I don't want to create pain for others. And yet, as I reflected on his statement and as I thought about the kinds of leadership decisions that I would have to make and that I have made, the hard reality is you cannot lead and you certainly cannot lead major change unless you are willing to inflict some pain. Now, when I think about moving the seminary, what kind of painful circumstances did people encounter? Well, many people often go quickly to focus on the situation of moving the seminary. Oh, I bet it was challenging to move a library, or it was challenging to move the classes, or it was challenging to pack all the equipment, or it was hard to move the legacy items to, to dismantle part of your campus and bring your heritage with you. Really, none of that was really all that difficult. What was painful about the relocation of the seminary was the personal cost that many people had to pay. For example, uh, we had a family with uh, multiple teenagers, all in high school and middle school, all with networks of friends and strong relationships in their church. They had to uproot that, their family and move 400 miles with the seminary. Another family uh, faculty member had a wife who had a very lucrative position in the medical field. She had to walk away from that, uh, giving up her seniority, her rank, her position, and move to Southern California uh, with confidence that God would take care of their family, but nonetheless giving up everything she had spent years uh, building in terms of her own career. Uh, another person who'd been with the seminary for many, many years uh, lived there in Mill Valley uh, with his wife and their children and grandchildren lived within just a very short driving distance of their home. It was an idyllic situation. He had a job he enjoyed in a place they loved living uh, with their family surrounding them. And yet, in order to come to Southern California, they had to uproot and come 400 miles, leaving all that behind. But some of the pain was even more poignant. We had one particular employee who had a daughter that uh, has some special educational needs. And she was in a very, very uh, good program there in Northern California. When I announced the seminary was moving, I knew that I was uprooting that, uh, that delightful young woman out of, that, out of that program and forcing her to come to Southern California where there may or may not be a similar program. So when you think about the pain that major leadership change in, uh, uh, involves, uh, it's not just the organizational change or the organizational pain. In fact, frankly, those things are really manageable. It's the personal dimensions of major change. It's people having to give up their jobs, their their friendships, their churches. It's people having to give up their careers, their, their grandchildren. It's people having to give up on a personal basis so much in order to accomplish a major change. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm probably never going to move a seminary, but think about the painful circumstances you create when you initiate major change, even in a church context. For example, a number of years ago, I was uh, sitting in my church when the pastor unveiled a very significant building project that he wanted the church to undertake. Now, I'd been following the development of this uh, project for some weeks, and so I knew that it was a good project. It was one that I basically supported and wanted to see uh, be successful. But when the pastor rolled out the project and announced the cost, my first thought that went through my mind was, well, there goes your vacation. There goes your vacation. You know, I, I don't have large amounts of discretionary income. I, I want to give to my church, but in order to do that, I have to give up some things. And in order to give to that building program, I knew that we were going to have to set aside money we'd been saving up for vacation or for travel or for something we would enjoy and give that money instead to the church. So when I talk about major change being painful, 
Um, I'm not really talking that much about the organization. I'm more talking about the individuals involved in making the change a reality and what that, uh, what that feels like and what that looks like. Now, that leads us to a, another significant question, and that is, does Jesus ever want organizations uh, to go through major change? Uh, does Jesus ever want churches to go through major change, especially if those changes are going to be painful for his people? In other words, do the leaders ever get direction from God to initiate major change, which is going to be painful for the followers that God has entrusted to them? And the answer to that question is yes. In Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus taught about major change, and I want to just highlight a little bit of what he taught, and then two principles that he underscored. Uh, in, the, in Matthew chapter 9, there's three short stories or three short vignettes that are uh, juxtaposed in an unusual and interesting way. They, on the surface, uh, don't seem like they go together. And for many years, I read over them quickly so I could get to the two principles Jesus taught in the passage about change. But, but one day, I, I reflected more on these little stories, and I, I, I came to understand that these stories actually were models of how Jesus was showing us how people responded to change. Now, the change that he was introducing was, of course, the inauguration of his kingdom. And uh, as he was doing that, different individuals and groups were responding to him in different ways. So listen to the text in Matthew 9, 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, oh, excuse me, uh, let's stop there. He followed him. So the first uh, example of, hearing, of following G, of a major change here is major change for Matthew. Uh, Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. Oh, if it were always that simple. But now we go on to the next story. The next story is, uh, it says, while he was reclining at table in the house, meaning Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were really angry. Why? Because Jesus was introducing major change that was very painful to them. They had spent centuries perfecting the application of the Old Testament food laws to create ritualistic patterns for eating that controlled who you ate with, what you ate, and how you did it. Jesus obliterated centuries of their tradition in one dinner party. And they asked him, why are you doing this? And why, they ask his followers, why does your teacher do this? Now, the Pharisees illustrate this response to change. Some people complain that too much is changing too fast. As I said, Jesus obliterated centuries of tradition about food laws in one dinner party, and the Pharisees were angry about that. Then another group, verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? The whining in their voices is uh, uh, very clear to me. They asked Jesus, what's wrong with your disciples? Why aren't they fasting? We're fasting. We're followers of John. We, we're early adopters. We got the message quickly. We've been doing what's right for a long time. What's wrong with your people? They're going to dinner parties. So the, so the issue with John's disciples was they were frustrated that not enough was changing fast enough. They said to Jesus, you need to get with the program, and you need to get your people with the program. We're moving along here. We've got to get, we get going. Look, we, we, we bought in quickly and early with John. Now we're ready to follow you. 
So these stories, Matthew, the Pharisees, and John's disciples, I think are very instructive to help us understand what uh, or how people respond to change. Sure, some people hear from Jesus and follow him, and it's just that simple. But quite frankly, most of us, most of us, veer between the extremes of the Pharisees and John's disciples. On some things, we complain that too much is changing fast enough. And on other things, we complain that not enough is changing fast enough. Now, you may say, well, I'm always in that latter group. I'm always one that wants more change. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're just like everyone else. On things that you want to change, you're all about making those changes quickly. But in other areas where you're more resistant or you don't think the change is needed, you can be just as stubborn as the next person. All of us struggle with veering between these two extremes of being like the Pharisees, too much is changing too fast, or like John's disciples, not enough is changing fast enough. Uh, For example, in 1973, the American League introduced an abomination to the game of baseball called the designated hitter rule. And I've been mad about it ever since. Now, you may be thinking, why would anyone care? Well, that's because you don't understand how baseball is supposed to be played by the beloved National League rules that doesn't have the ridiculous designated hitter and requires the pitcher to bat and all the strategic choices that have to be made by the manager as a result of that and all the different ways the game can be played offensively uh, as a result. Now, that's a silly illustration, but it marks my point. I get frustrated with some things that I don't want to change, and so I can be just like a Pharisee. That does not need to change. That music does not need to change. That preaching style does not need to change. That publicity method does not need to change. That location does not need to change. Those things just don't need to change. Or I can be like John's disciples and be a person who complains and gripes about the fact that not enough is changing fast enough. I've been both. I am both. And so are you, depending on the situation that you're facing. But after Jesus uses, tells us these three stories, uh, then he moves into teaching two important principles. And he does that with some illustrations that really made a lot of sense in his day, but maybe need some explaining for ours. In the next verse, 15, Jesus said, uh, Can the wedding guests be, take, be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then he says, No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth. cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. Now, in today's world, when you want a new shirt for a two-year-old, you just go to Walmart or dial up Amazon. But in Jesus' time, when you wanted a new shirt for a two-year-old, the first thing you did was shear a sheep. And then you uh, spun that wool into thread, and you wove that thread into cloth, and you cut that cloth uh, into a pattern, and then you sewed it and put it on the child. Now, of course, the child would get the garment soiled, and So you'd pull it off, take it down to the river, uh, dip it in the river, beat it against a rock, and the garment would shrink and form into a new new shape. The child would wear the garment again, and this would go on repeatedly until finally the garment would tear. Now Jesus was teaching in his culture, and all the women that would have heard him would have known exactly what he meant. Jesus said, no one takes uh, some new uh, cloth and sews it onto an old garment, because when you do... When the new cloth shrinks, it'll pull away from the old garment, and you're going to have a worse mess than you had in the first place. So, what's the principle about major change that Jesus is teaching with this illustration? The principle is no patches. Major change sometimes means major change. No patches. Now, let me hasten to say 
that some change, in fact, most change in ministry organizations needs to be incremental change, meaning that you make a, a little bit of change today and a little bit more change tomorrow and a little bit more change next week. And that's good. It's a, it's a systematic, simple, methodical way to move an organization forward with incremental change. And there's certainly nothing about uh, my teaching on major change that invalidates the need for incremental change in most cases. But Jesus said sometimes... Incremental change is not going to work. Sometimes a patch won't do. Sometimes real change means real change. I'll give you a couple examples. Suppose that in America we were to decide uh, that we're going to start driving on the left-hand side of the road instead of the right-hand side of the road. Would you want that phased in county by county or state by state? No. You would want the entire country at the stroke of midnight on a particular day to reverse its traffic patterns. Real change means real change. You can't phase in to some situations or you can't incrementally make the difference, uh, make the change. You just have to say, one day we're doing it one way, another day we're doing it another way. Now, uh, another example, suppose uh, you're not married and you get engaged. Uh, would you want your fiancé to say to you, hey, now that we're engaged, I'm going to phase down my dating of other women? I don't think that would work. No. Most of us would say that other, the dating of other women needed to stop a long time ago, and the engagement definitely precludes any other relationship. Real change means real change. No patches. So then, another principle Jesus taught is in the next verse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, the wineskins spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, in, the, in Jesus' day, uh, wine was uh, made uh, this way, at least one of the ways. Uh, you would take fermented grape juice, or excuse me, you take a regular grape juice and pour it into an animal hide pouch called a wineskin. Now, this animal hide pouch would be a pliable pouch made of an animal's hide that would be sewn together in such a way that it would hold liquid. Uh, you'd pour the grape juice in, seal it, and hang it up on a tent peg uh, or in your home or, uh, or on some kind of a, 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 a place where it could be stored, and you'd let it ferment. Now, when the fermentation process took place, you know what happens. Fermentation causes the liquid to expand, meaning that it fills up the, uh, the, the wine skin, and the wine skin has to adjust and get larger in order to accommodate the fermentation process. So Jesus says this, no one, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. No one pours fresh grape juice into a battered old wineskin that they went out in the backyard and took off the scrap heap. Uh, no one does that because when that wineskin, uh, when that fermentation process starts, that wineskin will be brittle, it'll be dry, and it'll crack, and you'll lose everything. Now, what's the principle Jesus is trying to teach? And it's this. Major change means new structures. Major change means new structures. Now, one of the frustrations that many leaders have is they try to lead major change by putting the major change into the context or structure of their current situation. Uh, meaning this, you announce that you're going to reformat your church's evangelism strategy, but rather than change your budget to accommodate and support that new evangelism strategy, you leave the budget just like it is, and so there's no new money or no focused money put into the evangelism strategy. The budget then becomes a wineskin. It becomes a structure. It becomes a holder. 
So you're announcing a major change of a new evangelism strategy. You may even be going to training for this, motivating people to take part in it, trying to adjust their expectations of what it means to be involved in church ministry by getting them, uh, making them uh, have this as a higher priority. You can do all those things. But if you don't adjust your budget to support the programming, the materials, and the people involved to lead this major change, it's never going to work. Same thing with your schedule. You say, well, we're going to add evangelism to the schedule of our church. Well, then what are you going to subtract? Because if you don't take something away and you just keep adding on, you're really not changing anything in terms of the allocation of time that people have for a certain project. So when I say new structures, when I say new structures, I mean things like new budgets, new organizational charts. Uh, new schedules, um, or for example, I, I mean new uh, new uh, 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 holders, or, 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 or even in something that can be physical, like a building. And so these are the kinds of, of wineskins that I think are applicable in our setting today. Now, uh, I've made this mistake uh, over and over in, in ministry uh, by not creating the structure the holder, if you will, not creating the organizational chart, not creating the financial support, not creating the scheduling change to support what I was advocating as a major change in a ministry organization. Uh, a lot of times uh, this is uh, considered more implementation of change, and I get that and I understand it, but I really see it as a part of the major change. So that when you announce the new set of circumstances or you agree to the new set of circumstances, you say this is the change we're going to make that you have a corresponding plan to put into place the new structures needed to support uh, and keep this and make this change viable as you go forward. Well, what we've started today in understanding major change by looking at a definition of change, which, as I say, in, always includes this issue of intends major change. Major change is at the core of what we do as leaders. Uh, we're, we're not only managers, although we are managers, and we're not only incremental change agents, although that is very desirable in most cases to make incremental change, but occasionally we have to take responsibility for a major change. We have to realign staff, reformat budget, re, uh, move to a new location, uh, create a new facility. Uh, somehow we have to step forward and produce a very significant major change. Now, when that happens, uh, you will ask yourself the question, do I really, should I really do this if it's going to be this painful for people? And the answer is yes. Jesus said people react to change in different ways. Some hear me and follow me, like Matthew. But most veer between the extremes of the Pharisees and John's disciples. Too much is changing too fast. Not enough is changing fast enough. People will struggle with major change. But it will be more successful if you can keep these two, folk, these two overarching principles in view. Major change means real change, no patches. It is permissible sometimes to do away with the old garment and bring in a new garment. And major change means new structures, new wineskins. It means new budgets, new organizational charts, new schedules, new facilities. It means new programs. It means new people. Major change requires new structures to support it as it's implemented, new wineskins. So as you think about leading major change in your ministry setting, uh, start by reviewing this biblical material and letting it encourage you. And then as we move into next week's podcast, we're going to talk about uh, answering this key question. How do you know when it's really time for a major change? And as I'll say next week, we need more than an intuitive idea about this. We need a, a process we can work through, a diagnostic tool 
that will help us know when to lead major change. And I've designed that diagnostic tool. I've written about it, and I'm going to teach you about it next week. Major change, it's part of the agenda of leadership. Lead on.